People are complicated subjects, especially people who play roles of political and cultural leadership. As we have, and as we have seen, uh, it can, that can involve all sorts of distillation and purposeful editing. Cities are also complicated subjects, in some ways far more complicated. Nearly chaotic composites of millions of enacted ambitions and dispositions over periods longer than one lifetime. And a single image, urban portrait, almost always seems either satisfyingly comprehensive but too distant, or more revealingly close but too fragmentary. In fact, as I've looked at the visual calm of others' presentations over the last two days, with just a painting or two, I'm afraid that I must admit that mine are much more fully populated, uh, even crowded and kaleidoscopic, um, much like these rapidly expanding cities. I should apologize in advance, um, but I'll just blame the same classic snare of trying to be both uh, broad in coverage and detailed about evidence. Um, but it will be graphically rich, I can promise that. We could doubtlessly spend hours discussing the overt and subtle differences and commonalities between the two subjects of portrayal, these two subjects of portrayal. A prompt for this session, though, offers a welcome foothold in the binary frame of considering the face and the body of the city, notions that invite some definitional exploration. It also thinks another binary of the city represented compared with the city built and experienced. Brick can outlast flesh. In parts of that real city 200 years ago, or more specifically of these four cities at issue, on which I'll cheat a minute, have survived in some degree, many indeed most parts of this physical city, though, and the experience of it have proven as ephemeral as these depicted persons, leaving us critically dependent upon images and text to see and know that city of circa 1800. In this paper, we'll approach this by following our anthropomorphic metaphor, moving down from the face to the body, heading for the feet, where we will find our most inclusive and complex portrait of these cities. In fact, I may beat this metaphor right into the ground. <laughs> uh, before we delve into what documents and survivals can tell us of these cities, though, um, we must obviously put on the table differences of size and scale, something evident in population, extent on maps, appearances on the street, and indeed in the whole experience of these cities. In 1800, Philadelphia had a population of just over 60,000 including the most densely settled parts of the eastern portions of the adjacent districts beyond the strict city limits, uh, just below and above the book lines here. And New York City was approaching parity with almost the same population, about 60,000. The whole city of Paris, on the other hand, uh, had a population of over 500,000 residents, putting it in quite another category, nine times larger, while Washington was just getting started. Uh, with a population of just over 3,000 for the whole of the District of Columbia, not all of it urbanized. Making it quite a different scale of city, one of grand ambitions, as yet only patchily inhabited. The acreage covered by their densely built up portions, as indicated by hatching or solids on these maps, is difficult to find or calculate to, to a shared threshold. Um, but the three American cities densely inhabited 
less than half of their legal territory. Viewed numerically on maps, these four cities occupy three rather distinct categories in size. But the notion of an urban face diminishes that categorical dissimilarity. The Washington of 1818, still an embryo in terms of its patchy urban fabric, already possessed a face, itself only partly realized in its nationally symbolic buildings. The conception of an urban face is upright and frontal, public and monumental. This conception of urban face. It is composed face, powdered and coiffed, calculated for public presentation. In the case of rural Washington, the city's face is represented here by two key governmental buildings presented in elevation as designs that convey its symbolic political potency separately from the face of its urban fabric. Then not so potent, continuous or symbolically expressive. Images that, like these, put that forward an urban face comprised as a discontinuous selection of a city's most architecturally ambitious buildings in materials, scale, and currency of design. Other cities of this time were similarly portrayed in images of non-adjacent iconic buildings and spaces more commonly rendered in perspective and also including non-governmental sites from churches or theaters or venerable historic structures to squares and avenues and vistas, and even private residential and commercial places that had come to be recognized as distinctive landmarks. In Philadelphia, this type of urban portraiture is best reflected in about two dozen images made by William and Thomas Birch in 1799 and 1800, recording a good proportion of the most ambitious city buildings of the previous several decades. The elder Birch, William, had immigrated from London to Philadelphia in 1794, and his views, of course, reflect a long tradition of urban vedute, such as those by Canaletto and Vasi of Venice and Rome, respectively, that appealed to gentlemen of taste on the Grand Tour. They presented iconic landmarks in sharply oblique perspectives, usually focusing on special and individual places, easily recognized and usually known by name, that one could take as key elements of the visual and even the described face of their city. Canaletto came to Britain, where his patronage was strong. In, in the 1780s and 90s, similarly conceived prints of London and then Dublin by the Waltons, Thomas and James, were the most proximate models for Birch's views of Philadelphia. Like them, most Birch views had an extraordinary building as a focal subject, either a major public, uh, uh, including major public and preeminent private ones, so that their diverse framing offered a sense of a richly endowed city. I can't claim more than a very casual familiarity with coeval French topographical prints, but one gets the impression that 18th and 17th century views of Paris often seem less contextualized amid vernacular neighbors than these Anglo-Italian examples, with a more exclusive focus on buildings and complexes as symmetrically framed, designed spaces, and self-sufficient reflections of royal, imperial, or republican patronage, sometimes presented accidentally. There seems to be a departure, though, in many early 19th century prints of Parisian sites drawn and published by Englishmen or Franco-English figures, like the prolific Auguste Charles Pugin, father of British Gothic revivalist A.W.M. Pugin, who uh, devised many such prints. Perhaps this related to a picturesque conceptual framing, but in the case of the Malton and Birch views, there was also a sense of a pictorial strategy that framed views more inclusively 
emphasizing the design distinction of their main subject by including more modest neighbors and playing off the contrast offered by their more quotidian character. Philadelphia, graphically, was an extraordinary, extraordinarily well-represented uh, city, um, with other sizable sets by C.G. Childs in 1827-30 and J.C. Wilde in 1838. New York City offered a somewhat different picture, or set of There was no early published parallel to Birch's views, and Henry J. McGarry's effort about 1828 to publish a set of street views in New York City seems to have included just three images. But in 1830 to 31, George M. Warren published one series, and in 1831 to 33, Peabody and Company published another, each comprising about three dozen views. These three series already show urban faces somewhat distinct in character from that offered in Philadelphia by the Birches. They still depicted the city through images of key institutions, but also as one uh, as, uh, as more of a changeful, dense city of commercial vitality, of thriving waterfront and businesses. These took in more of a modern mercantile vernacular than, than quickly claiming central urban sites in lower Manhattan that had only recently been residential ones. These published views appeared in such sets as well as in magazines, guidebooks, and other venues, or often as independent prints. They were created in multiple copies for sale and usually offered some notion of a generalized urban face for public consumption. Part of an economy of image making that, that depended on an audience of many purchasers or subscribers. They anticipated ap appetites of buyers, the anticipated appetites of buyers, shaped these topically. And this dynamic image of a burgeoning New York City of business started to depart from that of a more static city of solid civic institutions and genteel Georgian visual consonances. Some prints and print series presented a different face that was more specifically directed to particular audiences. This was especially the case for, the top, for topographical advertising prints, a series with 18th century roots that grew in number and indeed in size from business card to broadside proportions by the 1830s. These were aimed quite narrowly to promote customer awareness of individual businesses, and many, caref many carefully depicting the fronts of store buildings that had previously been 18th century houses. Hundreds of these large advertising views survived, offering narrow but quite detailed windows on the commercial part of the urban fabric, quite distinct from that from the streetscapes of the Vedute. But a, a related type of image widened that window dramatically, effectively gathering building fronts in long series, providing us with a more collective and continuous vision of urban faces of Berlin, Brussels, going from upper left to lower, lower right, Berlin, Brussels, Paris, St. Petersburg, and Rome, beginning in the 1820s. These typically joined lithographs in composite strips that could extend to over 10 meters in length scrolled or folded accordion style for purchase in cassettes or slipcases. Graphic entrepreneurs devised these to appeal to visitors eager to consume the experience of avenues of desire that were sites of profound attraction for bourgeois populations newly able to afford this prerogative of travel, as well as the status solidifying goods and services available on these avenues. Published and offered for sale, these created a means to materially possess, revisit, and share that experience. 
At least nine of these wide, nearly inundational streetscapes of Paris were published between the 1820s and 1880s. They depicted settings mainly along the Grand Boulevards, rich in theaters and restaurants and other opportunities for entertainment and consuming, with a vibrant scene of diverse characters playing out their vocational and class identities in the foreground. These showed a different piece of the city than had the earlier Vedute. So did a related set of long, nearly orthographic views that appear in English-speaking cities from the 1830s on, which depicted yet another urban phase, in this case one that very directly served subscribing retail and wholesale merchants along the principal corridors of commerce, reflected, represented here by small snippets of long series tracking key commercial streets in these different cities. In the case of these two American examples, along the, uh, well, the, the, the one at right and the two at the bottom. Uh, we've passed the mid-19th century, but one would estimate, at least for the 1851 Philadelphia Panoramic Street Directory by Julio Ray, that the larger number of the buildings shown were by then already three to six decades old, many of them adapted to business in the interim with enlarged long windows, signage, and drop stoops. These two species of long street view types show different special faces of the city, once taken along key blocks that met criteria defined by their role on offer as graphic commodities. The faces they presented were largely distinct from the city of governance, institutions, and monuments that appeared in views like those by Berkshire, Philadelphia, and Malden of Dublin. Still, a great proportion of the urban fabric of the 18th century city remained beyond all these catchments. Returning to 18th, 19th century Philadelphia, a very rough mapping of the street front rate coverage of the Birch views within the most densely built precincts of the city suggests that the proportion and aspect of the city's urban face issue, uh, considering the scarcity of comparable views before 1800, it's certainly a glass half full. But were we to invert that, it's also a glass half empty with much of that city, even in this most central area, left in shadow. The depicted parts generally adhere to what might call, one might call corridors of visibility, while perpendicular streets and walk interiors with secondary and tertiary streets and courts generally escape depiction beyond chance glimpses at intersections with major streets. Those unseen areas are in fact a larger proportion of the landscape of the 18th century city. By one reading of our meta metaphorical framework, one might cast those as the body of the city as opposed to its face. They lay beside, behind, and beyond the city's purposefully representational elements as the setting of the city's quotidian functions, usually built more modestly and often speculatively in replicative series. The printmaker less frequently offered views that took this urban body as their primary focus in the thinning patterns of survival into the age of photography, and indeed into the present day, can skew our knowledge of that body. We are left to the selective mercies of survival and records to know that place. Over the last two centuries, the Central Business District has claimed much of the densest part of the former footprint of each city, propelled economically by competing desires for that valued real estate, and materially by the ability to build tall and offering an encouraging building broad by the appetite of the train for its pathways and terminals, and ultimately by the transformative, ravenous hunger of the car for both parking and expanded roadways. 
and ultimately by the amenities and modern buildings that pit their appeal against the survival of an earlier urban vernacular from two centuries ago. We do, however, catch some glimpses of the face of that body of the 18th century city on the margins of period prints. And by enlarging these, we get some of our best illustrations of the more normative textures of that city, with a surprising number of modestly built small buildings even along the visible corridors where these formal landmarks were located. They serve as both evidence of this often lost fabric and as a check on the representativeness of what survives. Other views of that urban body were offered through some different species of graphic production from beyond the marketplace of prints and publications, as occasional images in private or official surveys, such as those in old road openings and landholding documents. Um, th these can sometimes um, be <coughs> quite conventionalized and unspecific, but we also see efforts, as a lower left here, to show Specific appearances of otherwise little-known building forms, even straining to include elevations of rear extensions, or, as at right, in perspectives by Charles the Craft from the 1790s, depicting everyday buildings in remarkable detail and perspective for a private owner. Larger, larger property owners, especially trusts and institutions sustained by rents from long-held urban properties, sometimes left rich bodies of surveys of their buildings, as in these examples from 17th century London, at lower left, and Rome, the top and bottom right. A body of more elaborately rendered images, though, exists in scores of unpublished one-offs, in individual oil paintings, watercolors, and sketches directed to appeal to an audience as small as one, often a building's owner, a collector, or an image's creator which could define a far more narrow interest and could vary greatly in subject. A good proportion of these perspectives um, that pre address the urban body, though, were decidedly retrospective. As the city's center started to be radically transformed by business around the middle of the 19th century, amateur and professional artists made an increasing number of images that captured both textures and landmarks of a disappearing 18th century city, often in watercolors commissioned or collected by antiquarians. Philadelphia is blessed with many of this kind of image as well, from the pencil and brush of four mid-19th century image makers, uh, including William Breton, David J. Kennedy, James P. Taylor, and Benjamin Ridgeway Evans. Paris, of course, has its correlates, especially in the early photographic record of that city's more textural face from the 18th century before much of it, uh, uh, when much of it was on the verge of demolition in views shot by Charles Marville or Eugene Nadjay or officially commissioned and drawn by Gabriel David Davoud uh, in anticipation of husband's pair smokes. They offer us sometimes unique records of deeply nested faces of an older urban body, penetrating well beyond the principal corridors of, of visibility. One should posit another sense of the urban body, one that presents buildings and places, especially those that serve everyday urban functions, as volumetric objects in three dimensions, more than faces, and within a larger spatial context. Our most effective tools for knowing this urban body are plans, from outlined building footprints to much more detailed records of spaces. And this becomes even more effective 
where we can pair such plans with views or elevations. For monumental buildings and ambitious designs of 18th century architects, of course, we do sometimes have great plans, multiple elevations, and even sections that reveal spatial form. But their survival skews decidedly to the high end of the built fabric. And for the middle and whole ranges, one turns to the wider embrace of other forms of documentation, often produced from private landowners, by governments, and by businesses. One remarkable source for early Philadelphia buildings, paralleled to some degree in other cities, lies in tens of thousands of individual surveys made for fire insurance purposes. These include both extensive descriptive text and after the first quarter of the 19th century, dimension, if usually single line, plans. They can be extremely detailed about spaces within a wide range of individual structures from modest to grand, going beyond footprints to glimpse what one might call the anatomy of the urban body. If in discontinuous samples, placed alongside coeval records of taxes on real estate and correlating late 18th century city directories and other records, such resources have supported the efforts of scholars such as Sharon Salinger, Mary Schweitzer, Stuart Blumen, and Billy Smith to define averages and sketch out distributions in terms of floor areas, building values, materials, owner occupancy, and vocations that give a statistical picture of the urban body of the late 18th century. In a like vein, Mikhail Daren has explored, for example, owner occupancy in Paris over this general period. Such data offer us a much broader sense of the body of the city, scoping out ranges and, ranges and patterns within this very complex artifact, if often numerically. Although some new geographical visualization tools, such as those offered recently by the web-based Aldes Historique de Paris, have begun to display some patterns of land use and growth graphically in a more locationally specific ways. In terms of period visual evidence, though, our most incisive and detailed record of the urban body relies on comprehensive urban maps, especially those detailed down to the footprint of the individual building and its lot boundaries. For 18th century cities, detailed cadastral maps are not so available as historians might wish. Oops, I already, no, we go. Among the earliest published comprehensive urban maps to delineate individual building by building footprints, as opposed to block by block outlines, is John Roke's Exact Survey of Dublin, published in 1756. Others, such as uh, Noli's renowned 1748 map of Rome, had included plans of churches and other public buildings, but Roke asserted that his map surpassed, quote, any yet published in Europe, unquote giving, quote, the ground plan of all public buildings, lawn houses, uh, warehouses, stables, courts, yards, etc. The next half century would bring a striking increase in precision in cadastral city plans. Paris would play a leading role, a subject on which I defer to our next speaker, Professor Lee, who has especially studied these as instruments of urban reconfiguration. Similar to Noli's map, the 1775 Jaillot map showed public interiors, especially churches, and some darkened specific footprints for key buildings, but mostly within generically hatched blocks. The 1790 Verdicate Atlas, on the other hand, appeared to offer greater precision and some small clusters of more detailed private building footprints. But the ultimate in urban mapping uh, came with the Vassaro Atlas, 
dated 1810 to 36, which integrated the plans of buildings into the much larger in, into the larger patterns of the anatomy of the whole block, the whole body of the city. The British seem to have reached this point only somewhat later, in the early 19th century, with their ordnance surveys of the middle third of the 19th century, made for the state by military engineers. Examples from Dublin from 1838 to 47 and Manchester from 1849 demonstrate this the kind of detail they show with plans for public buildings, including churches, individualized footprints for structures, and even indications of entries, sunken areas, and gardens. U.S. cities followed suit incrementally and did not achieve this level of precise and comprehensive urban coverage in published atlases until the mid-19th century. There were some extensive manuscript surveys, um, such as the single sheet plan by John Hills of Philadelphia County's Southern District from 1788 on, or the remarkable Randall Farms maps of Manhattan, 92 sheets from starting 1818 to 20. Both looked to the less, less to the extant core of their, older, of their cities than their peripheries, preparing for planned expansion with new roads southward from Philadelphia's densely built district and northwards from New York's. What appears to be the first published American example of such a comprehensive survey approaching such footprint by footprint culture uh, coverage seems to be J.G. Uh, Hill's plan of Boston from 1814 on a single sheet about three feet across. One does get a more precise sense of parts of a surprisingly wooden Boston in 1798 from several carefully drafted, detailed, and color-coded sheets, yellow here being wood. Um, but these were actually advised much later in the 1930s by the antiquarian Samuel C. Clough based on painstaking historical research. The first precisely detailed urban canasters in the United States at larger scale came some decades later with what were called real estate, fire insurance, or ward atlases published in folio volumes containing dozens of large sheets. The earliest of New York City was published by William Paris from 1852 on, of Philadelphia by Hexamer Walker from 1857 on, and of Boston from 1867 on by the firm of A.C. Sanborn. They are a, a little belated for our time frame today, but they nonetheless show a great deal of 18th century fabric, if, if at a moment when a central business district had just started to form, displacing and reconfiguring older buildings on many of the principal downtown streets. In them, one can often distinguish the new development from the older survivals. And this is where we are first able to see the whole body of the American city in its detail and variability. One is immediately tempted, at least I was, uh, to pair excerpts from these early cadastral atlases with roughly coeval stretches from the nearly orthographic street view sets, matching face and footprint to get a more penetrating sense of these urban settings, with New York on the left and Boston and Philadelphia on the right. The same could be done for Boston, or for one of the, uh, or for Dublin, or for one of several street view sets across Paris. In this case, two from the Arnu, uh, from the Arnu Paris on miniature and the Atlas Fossil, <coughs> roughly coeval. Here's another view. 
These pairings show only the very special parts of each city that had been chosen for depiction of the world views. In most states, well beyond our reference point in the earliest decades of the 19th century. So perhaps I should not have resisted, perhaps I should have resisted that temptation more strongly. But these aligned views of face and footprint help animate an integrated sense of buildings in continuous certain space and provide a record of some of the most visible yet constantly changeful parts of the city. One might wish for similar elevations of the streets and alleys running through the box behind these in order to have such an integrated portrait of the urban body. But those are rare, and we are largely left to infer from often patchy patterns of survival and period evidence coupled opportunistically with cadastral footprints. Indeed, similar pairings of these detailed maps with other scattered period images, such as Charles Monville's 1860s views of early American photographs, would help further populate and model that urban hinterland beyond the urban faces. But even where unallied to other views, the building footprints and plans in these detailed atlases of the early 19th century are formidable tools for reading the deeper urban fabric of the 18th century city and throwing into greater relief the relation, sometimes of purposeful distancing through the, through the, uh, through the rhetoric of building between the face and the body of the city. These detailed footprints themselves, though, present a portrait of a city that is variable at the remarkably granular scale of parcels of private ownership. Willful forms constantly challenge patterns in a fabric that has far more shaping agents than any single monumental work of architecture or indeed any painted portrait. This seems especially the case in the young American Republic, where, the where there were relatively few constraints on owners pursuing their own self-interest within the broad outlines of established city blocks. City founders proposed plans, but property owners would dispose, making these cities a rather chaotic palimpsest of overlaid and often contrary adjacent intentions. In the decades before and after the French Revolution, Paris often showed more evidence of large-scale orchestration and design, but it too was a place of active entrepreneurial shaping within the block. Ultimately, despite such contrasts in the body of these cities, Patterns of form, space, and use emerge from that chaos of what we might call extremely participatory urban design, giving each of these cities of the, of the early 19th century a measure of distinction that we embrace in our better moments as physical aspects of a character whose particularity enriches our experience of cities. Thanks very much.